Amen. So we've been talking about abide, love, multiply. We've been taking our time. We've been going through those words really slowly. But if you want to know what it's like to be somebody who uh, who's a part of Hope Church, if you want to know what we kind of try and condense the Christian life down to, what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? We use these three words. Abide, love, multiply. And they describe relationships in different directions. Abide is a word that we use to describe the individual's relationship with the Lord, we believe that God exists and that people connect with Him. And that connection, that intimacy that's formed between an individual and, and God, or God the Father, we, we use the word abide to describe it. That's something that Jesus used in the book of John. He talked about abiding in God. And that's not that offensive. I think most people in our culture today see that word and think, sure, do whatever you want in your little prayer closet. Love. Love is another word that we use. And we use that word to describe humans' relationship to human. Uh, especially within the church. So how do you connect with other people uh, who are around you? Your family, your friends, people you are, uh, go to work with, people that you hang out with at church. How do you just get together? And we talked through the book of 1 Corinthians as we described that process, culminating in love. Um, so we kind of described it several different ways throughout the book, but if you've ever been familiar, uh, you go to a Christian wedding, a lot of times they'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's this poetic expression of what love is. And we want to figure that out. We want to live that out together. You can't do that by yourself. You've got to do it in community. So we talked about that word. And now we're going to move into our third word. Uh, multiply. And the reason I said that nobody really is too offended by abide. And, and I don't think too many people are offended by love. Right? I mean, John Lennon. Everybody loves love. You know, love. Just love. Love. Why don't you know, love. It's a great word. Everybody loves the word love. But when you say multiply, that's when you cross a line. And that's when there's a distinction made between the worldview that we hold and worldviews that are outside the one that we hold. That's where there's a, a rub, a distinction, a perceived aggression for people that are outside of the church by people that are inside the church. And the reason is because we are not content to be the only ones who think the way that we think about who we are, about who God is, and about what's next. Our answers to the big questions are such that we don't want to keep them private. We want you to agree with us. People that you meet that are outside of the church, it's not appropriate for somebody who follows Christ to hold their beliefs about Christ to themselves, but instead we're commanded to speak those beliefs. To try and present those beliefs to a watching world in the hopes that those people will, and then fill in the blank, convert, agree, join, however you want to describe it. And that's the rub. Because America, we live in a very pluralistic society, right? Everybody believes something different. And if you don't, well, try and tweak what you do to make it a little more different. Just to be hip and part of the whole scene, right? Everybody believes something a little bit different. How do you get along in that kind of a culture? How do you get along in a society that's supposed to be multifaceted, multi-ethnic, multi-religious? How do you maintain the concept of multiplication while you see people around you offended by the implicit insult on their worldview? If I tell you to do something differently, what I'm doing is I'm saying that the way you're currently doing it is wrong. 
Now, if that is because you've got Geico and, man, you really should have Allstate, that's not that offensive. <laughs> right? And if that's because, hey, you drive uh, a VW, and, and I think, really, man, you may be more comfortable in a Honda, that's not that offensive. But when it has to do with your understanding of the big questions, it can become incredibly offensive. <laughs> right? Hey, you know what you think about how your love of your mother looks? Let me redefine it totally. Hey, you know what you think about everybody that's ever passed on? Let me define that, redefine that totally. Hey, you know, everything that you believe about what's right and what's wrong and how those beliefs inform your relationships and your politics? Hey, let me redefine all of them. That's a radical thing to say in our culture. How do you say that? How do we defend ourselves when we say that we want to multiply? And we do want to multiply. If you'll notice our fancy screen that we've got, there's several uh, ideas about what a Hope Church person is or what we think or believe. Put large here. And we say these are our core values. We want to be joyful. We want to be hospitable. We want to be adaptable. Things change. We want to change with them. Hospitality, I mean, you had some of our donuts. If you get to hang out with us a little bit more, you know, we, we like to eat, <laughs> right? We spend some cash on food. We're not scared to do that. And then joyful, you know, we try to be smiley. We don't like tickle each other, but <laughs> we try to, you know, we want the mood to be not like rainy and dour and windy. We want it to be kind of, yeah, you know, sunshiny, upbeat, love, right? And then we have these plumb lines. And the plumb lines get a little bit more specific, a little less obvious, and maybe a little more controversial. Because what's the first one? Members multiply. So this is not a passing thing. This isn't something we talk about every now and again. This is something that we thought was so important, we wanted you to see it every time we got together. Members multiply. The ideas that we have as Christians, the ideas that the Bible talks about, are ideas that we want to see spread. Convictions that we want to see spread. Beliefs that we want to see held by everyone. And then we say it another way when we say prodigals take priority. And that word, prodigal, is, is, a, is kind of an insider language word. If you've not been familiar with the scriptures, I mean, there's a, there's a very famous parable that we're referring to when we talk about the word prodigal. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to use this idea of prodigal and a, a second story that's in the scriptures to understand the purpose behind multiplication. Because a lot hinges on the purpose. We could be shysters. Honestly. You know, like the purpose could be to get your money. The purpose could be to get your votes. The purpose could be uh, just have you around more often. To reinforce our own privately held beliefs. I don't know, there could be a billion of these. And it matters. Because as much as what we say may or may not make sense, if you question our motive... If the people that the people in this church talk to question our motive, ooh, that's tough. What's more, 
if our church doesn't know what our purpose is, our motive is behind this concept of multiplication, oh man, that's a bad thing. We're in a bad way. This is incredibly important. We have to underline it in our minds and in our journals. We need to refer to it regularly. We need to make sure that before we step, we know why we're stepping. We're going to multiply, but what's our purpose behind it? We're going to spend several weeks talking about multiplication, and each week is going to have a word over it that starts with a P. (laughs) So, good luck. It's alliteration. You should be able to remember it a little bit better. Hopefully you don't think it's too dumb. Today, though, purpose. What's behind this concept of multiplication? Because not only is it controversial in our world, if we don't get this right... We might find ourselves spending a lot of effort doing something that doesn't matter. We may be Quixote fighting windmills. It could all be for naught. We've got to get this right. How do we do it? Well, prodigals take priority. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, Jesus tells a story. And the story that he's telling is really important to know the audience because... We are this audience. We're going to try and understand what Jesus was saying to the audience He was speaking to, knowing that He knew He was also speaking to us. So, Jesus was preaching. This man in the first century in Jerusalem was talking and preaching and giving out all this wisdom and He's stirring things. He's making waves. He's healing people. Casting out demons. Calling out real important people. Raising up real unimportant people. And as he's teaching, this big crowd of unimportant people came around him. People that the the religious crowd called outsiders. So there were tax collectors. What do we mean by tax collectors? We just mean individuals who had chosen to side with the Roman government and sell out their national people, the Jewish government. They were taking Jewish people and they were taking advantage of them and taking their money and giving it to the Romans, tax collectors. They were outsiders in the first century. Then there were also people that were just sinners. Who knows, man? They just they couldn't keep up pretending to be a good Jewish person. And so they were outsiders. Maybe they were... Um, I mean, Jesus talked often about dealing with women who you know, were selling themselves. Maybe they were people that were extortionists like the tax collectors. Maybe they were just people that were outside the lines. And as this kind of crowd of misfits gathered themselves to Jesus, the religious people watched and condemned Jesus and said, man, he really can pull the sinners to himself. I bet that's because, you know. And they didn't necessarily have to finish the sentence. Everybody knew, oh, he must be tainted himself. And so Jesus, looking at these two audiences, the outsiders and the big-time insiders, tells a story. And it's a story that we've come to call the prodigal son, or the parable of the prodigal son. But that's not what Luke calls it. In the Gospel of Luke, the story just begins in verse 11 when Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. And the reason I want to highlight that is because that concept of prodigal is one that we're going to expand. So, what the heck does the word prodigal mean? Well, Prodigal is kind of like some of those different biblical words that you only use in that context. Hallowed be your name. Wow, hallowed. You don't ever use that word. What does it mean? Prodigal, what does that word mean? It just means a person who spends 
everything they have. Every last dollar gets spent. Someone who gives everything they have is a prodigal. And what I want you to think about tonight, or this morning, as we go through these different characters in this parable is, how does that word apply to them? Because while I disagree that we should call the parable the prodigal son, or the parable the prodigal son, I absolutely agree that we should hold that word in concept, in, in, in the same time with this story, and put those things together. Because it's going to be critical for us understanding what our purpose is, why we have the chutzpah to think that our thing is right, that we should multiply. Verse 11, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And the father divided his property between them. Now, it may be difficult to understand what's saying, what's going on there, but a kid asks his wealthy father to go ahead and portion out his inheritance and hand it to him. Now, if you've heard the story before, this may not be news to you. If you haven't, just take a second to realize how ridiculous that is. By imagining yourself saying it to your parents. I have no more use for you. Really just need some funds. Go ahead and pretend you're dead. Sell your property, everything else you own, apportion it, and give me the, the proceeds. Incredibly offensive. It's offensive today, much less in this first century that was very parochial and, and you know, not the same as ours. But... Even though the father should have beaten the kid around the head and cast him out of his house. I mean, I mean you know, that's, that sounds like a you know, jokey overstatement. That's what he should have done. You know, in the first century, that's what you would have did. If your boy came at you like that, you'd have to come right back at it. Instead, he divided his property between them. The father gave, and the word that's used for property there, the, the idea of the thing that he's giving away there is actually bios. The idea of he's giving his life. He's taking himself apart and he's giving it up for his son. Interesting. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property in reckless living. There's the prodigal part of the younger son. He takes everything he has and he spends everything he has on reckless living. He becomes a, a pig feeder. There's a famine that takes place and the only thing he's fit to do is feed pigs. And he gets real hungry. He starts looking at what he's feeding the pigs and he gets this idea to himself. Verse 17, he came to himself. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will rise. I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, what's interesting there, and something that I've missed, but commentators help me to understand, when he says he wants to be a hired servant, what he's not saying is, Dad, I'll just feed your pigs, or I'll just be your slave. In fact, what he's saying is, there are skilled workers that work for you, Dad. Let me be an apprentice for them. I'll work hard, I'll make money, and I'll pay what I've taken from you. <coughs> so what he's saying is, I'm going to make myself your slave or your servant in the sense that I'm going to go and make money as an apprentice, as, a, as just a skilled worker, and I'm going to slowly try and pay back what I've taken from you. Shamefully taken from you. And yet, verse 20, <laughs> and here's where we get to apply the word prodigal somewhere else. 
as he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring the best robe and put it on him. The best robe would have been his robe. So get my stuff, get my robe and put it on him. Get a ring, one of our rings, one of the rings that shows who we are. Put it on his hand. There's identity, there's acceptance that's taking place. And put shoes on his feet. They didn't even have time to clean him up. Before his dad wanted to just embrace him in his identity again. Accept it again as son. The son didn't even have time to speak his plan of redemption to the dad. Before the dad said, no, 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 you're a son again. Complete forgiveness. Complete acceptance. And then he goes further. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. Why is that even further? The fattened calf becomes a big deal as he talks to the younger son. The fattened calf comes up again and again and again. And we're not really sure. Repetition, I can tell it's important. But I've never even seen a fat calf. Much less owned one or dealt with one or killed one or cooked one or threw a party with the invitation. We're killing the fatted calf. (laughs) But this is what happened. In those days, meat was not something you had a lot. And when you did kill an animal and you did get meat, you would have a... You would do a thing. It would be a thing. You would have a a party. And to kill a fatted calf was to take something that would continue to grow and have more value if you let it, but tasted a lot better if you killed it as a calf. Ooh, PETA. You know, that's not really necessarily PC, but that's what they did. If he took the, the, the most... What he was doing is he was doing the most extravagant thing he could do to celebrate the return of his son. And this is where we get to apply that word prodigal again. Because the father is spending everything that he has to embrace and show love and show acceptance to his son. He pulled up the skirts of his robes and he ran to him and he hugged him. He embraced him. He kissed him. That's not something that men did. That's something that a mom would have done, not a dad. And yet he throws aside all of his big, ancient respectfulness just because he loves his boy. He wants him back. He says in verse 24, For this my son was dead, (laughs) and he's alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now, We're using the word prodigal, we're trying to understand this parable, but we're also trying to, again, understand the purpose behind our multiplication. Let me tell you the secret. Here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to apply what's happening in this passage to why we multiply. Is Christianity all about just trying to get other people to agree with us? Or... Is there something really wonderful at the heart of Christianity that we're trying to give other people? Do you see the difference? Are we trying to break other individuals so that they follow our structures? Or is there something really warm and bright? Is there something really precious and wonderful that we have that we want to give to other people too? Okay. Let's keep going. Verse 28. The other son finds out what's going on. 
He hears about this party that's taking place. And he refuses to go in. The older son, the good son, the son that stayed around and worked hard. Verse 28, he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Man, he refused to go into a party that the whole town came to. So just like the, old, the younger son, he's offending his father in front of the culture. They killed a fatted calf. This is a big party. This is the most lavish party that town or this man has ever seen in his life. And yet, his older son refuses to even go into the party. People noticed, right? And the father, again, humbling himself, comes out to the son, the older son, the mad son, and entreated him, said, come on, come on, come inside. This is a great party. Verse 29, but the older son answered his father, look, he doesn't even address him. He doesn't say sir, he doesn't say father. Cuts all that out. He's angry. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay. So, how do we apply that word prodigal to this third character in the story? The third son, or I'm sorry, the the older son, the third character, has a startling parallel with the other son. It's that he doesn't care a wink for his father. What does he say? I served you faithfully. Look you, not father. Look, I've served you faithfully. I did everything I was supposed to do. You haven't given me so much as a goat. And when this sinner comes back, you kill a fatted calf for him? And you can feel it. There's something intense that's going on here. And it's right at the heart of why we do this multiplication thing. <laughs> it's right at the heart of the bright, center, warm thing that we're trying to give away. And it's that this guy used righteous acts to stay away from his father. He gave every hour Every ounce of energy, all of his discipline to obeying his father. But why? It wasn't out of love for his father. He couldn't care less for his father. It was in the hopes that he would get something back for it. So the older son and the younger son are trying to get to the same spot. They just went two different ways. The younger son wanted all the stuff so that he could go out and have a great time. He wanted the party. So, he denounced his father, took his inheritance, and went to a foreign land. The older son, all he wanted was the party. He could care less about the father. All he wanted was to take his young goat, go out with his friends, and have a great time. What's the heart of this? How does this all come together? What Jesus is teaching, both the Pharisees and the tax collectors, is that there's no difference between the two of them. They're two sides of the same coin. 
What they're doing is rejecting God in favor of something. Something pleasurable. Something they think will be better than God if they have it. An idol. And so the younger son has to confess all of these sins. And then he can come to the father, right? He has to say, listen, dad, I was wrong. He's got stuff he needs to confess, needs to deal with. But the confession comes after the kiss from his father, right? (laughs) So it's it's fantastic. But the older son doesn't have anything on that list. He says, I've done everything you've told me to do, dad. And dad doesn't argue. So in the greater theological sense, yeah, this son has sinned at one time or another. But what he's telling his dad is, I've always been obedient. I'm not like the other son. I'm I'm a good guy. I'm a religious person. And yet what Jesus says to him, just like to the other son is, you've missed the boat. You were just as disrespectful to your father as the other son. And when you had the opportunity to be with your father, instead what you did was reject him and show that in your heart the whole time what you wanted was something else, something different, something what you thought was more. This is the heart of why we're doing what we're doing. Missions, multiplication, sharing the gospel with people so that they understand who Christ is and accept him and become part of his family is all about not bad people becoming good people. It's all about people setting down whatever it is they think is better than God and instead choosing Him. The core of what we're about is taking the party and seeing that it's not as good as the Father. It's the whole point of Scripture. Beginning to end, the whole thing is about people choosing something other than God And experiencing horrible, horrible consequences for it. And it's not the horrible consequences of a jealous God who pouched because he wasn't loved more. It's the natural consequences of taking the way things are supposed to work and breaking them and trying to fit them together some other way that you like. The heart of the Christian message is that missions exist... Because worship doesn't. Evangelism, multiplication exists because worship doesn't. We're not seeking to reform the lives, the moral codes of individuals in our society. We're seeking to take people who don't serve God and encourage them to love and to worship God. Both sons had chosen the party over the father. That's wrong. That's going to lead to terrible, terrible loneliness and isolation. Whether you're trying to fill up that hole in your body with self-discovery, doing whatever you think might feel good, or you're trying to fill it up with some kind of moral conformity, doing what you think the world says you should. Either case, if you're doing those things to keep God away from yourself, you lose. The purpose behind trying to to share this gospel, to help people see who God is, is that they will see that He is better than anything else they might be building their life upon. And how do you prove that? 
Because it's one thing to say, don't choose other stuff, worship God instead. That's a cool turn. That's a change. Most people think religion is about changing people's behavior. No, we're not saying that. We're saying it's all about engaging in relationship with the Father. That's a different, that's a thing. But if you're outside, you're still going to say to yourself, you have to prove to me that the Father's better than the party. Because we've all had grandpas that we might have wanted to go to a party rather than hang out with. Let's just be frank. Some of you have said like six words to a grandparent in the last year. And you're cool with that. Like your, your whole goal is just to monitor how offended they are. And throw enough relationship on the fire so that they don't get too offended. And throw you out of the will. This all hinges on whether or not God is better than the party. God is better than the stuff. Because the person who says God is not better than the stuff says exactly what the most evil person in Scripture says. Really quickly, we're going to go to the book of Job. Satan's accusation, the devil's accusation, is that people only love God because God gives them stuff. They only love the Father because they can have the party. And the whole book of Job is 40 chapters about why that is not the case. It's 40 chapters about why God, why the Father is better than the party. And here's how he says it, and we'll do it quick, we're running low on time. It starts, chapter 1, a scene is heaven. Satan stands before God and God says to Satan in verse 8, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? And fear there, he, that's a, that, that sounds bad in English, but in the, what it's saying is it's a, it's a righteous admiration for, a true understanding of. It creates some fear, some trembling, but it's, a, it's an overwhelmingly positive emotion. He, he loves God. Does Job fear, does Job love God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house? So we've skipped several verses. It talks about how rich Job was. God has been kind to Job. You have blessed the work of his hand and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Try it. Behold, all that he has is in your hand. So, do you understand what's happening? This is the question that we asked. Is the Father better than the party? Satan says, no. The Father is the means to the end of the party. That's all you're using him for. All you Ayn Rand fans out there. This is her understanding of love. Her understanding of love is uh, a transaction. This is Satan's understanding of love. Nothing against Ayn Rand, but I want you to hear that. Instead, the Lord says... Test him and let's see what happens. Satan tests Job. So, it's this incredible scene. Servant after servant after servant come to speak to Job. And before one of them's done speaking, the next one barges in and starts, assuming that what he has to say is more important news than whatever the Alaska was saying. And there's this escalation that takes place. And these two groups come in and steal Job's stuff and kill his servants. 
And then fire from heaven falls and kills more of his livestock. You didn't have bank accounts back then. You had hairy animals that represented your wealth. And fire from heaven, boom, wiped away. Before he's done speaking, one comes in and says, your sons and your daughters were all partying together. The wind came, knocked out the walls, the roof fell. All your kids are dead, Job. And I'm the only one, I'm the only servant who's escaped to tell you. Now, if Satan's right, Job should curse God. Because he's faulty. I served you, and you haven't given me so much as a goat. Worse, you gave it and then you took it away. What does Job say? What does a follower of God say? Verses 20 and 21. Job wept. Look at this. He rose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground. If you saw somebody do that, you would not say they were just having a normal Tuesday. He's having an incredible emotional reaction. So he's not just stoic. He's exploding on the inside. And yet, he fell on the ground and what? He didn't curse, he worshipped. Verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, believer, is that your heart towards God? This is critical. Are you the older son? Are you just a good kid? Who thinks that if you do what God says, you're going to get great stuff, have a nice life? Probably a pretty posh afterlife. If he took all of that away and all you had was him, would that be enough? This is the heart of Christianity. Job, a truly righteous man, somebody who really gets it, said, yeah. I'm going to weep for my kids. I'm going to weep for the servants I lost. But blessed be the name of the Lord because I still have Him. So, there's nothing easy about understanding those concepts. We're going to get into the whole idea of suffering. I mean, there's some some why questions that come right here. We're going to get into that in weeks to come. But just take a second to realize why we do what we do. We try to multiply because Christ died so that we could have a relationship with the Father. We don't do good things to get good stuff. And we don't pretend like God doesn't exist and just amass as much fun and pleasure as we can. We trust in Jesus because He can offer us Father. He can offer us Himself. That's what we're about to celebrate as we take the Lord's Supper. The death, body and blood shed of Christ on our behalf. But it's not just an inspiring example. It's Christ making a way for us to have the Father. My hope is this morning, you recognize yourself as the younger son. And if you're the older son, understand that you're just like the younger son. 
And I pray that you'll look at the dirt and the pig pods and you'll say, man, I want to be with my father. That's what we have to offer in Christianity, is him. If If you're outside the house, if you're inside the house, you have a good father who wants you, who is prodigal in the way that he spends to get you. I pray that you would love Him and find Him to be so much better than all of our idols. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, as Josh comes up to lead us in the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would help us to understand at a deep level the goodness of your gospel, the goodness of who you are, that we would choose like Job, you over everything else. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.